Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and today we bring you the true story of the Battle of Okinawa, the last great battle of World War II. Codenamed Operation Iceberg, it involved U.S. Army, Navy, and Marines, and took a heavy toll on all three. Okinawa has been called the Typhoon of Steel for the number of Allied armored ships that took part in the battle a battle which is known for the atrocity and frequency of Japanese kamikaze attacks and the number of casualties incurred. Over 140,000 lives lost, along with hundreds of planes and dozens of ships. Before we begin our narrative, I would like to share a little bit of the backstory to Japanese aggression and the nature of this battle, because this battle, the Battle of Okinawa, answers the question of why it was necessary to end the war by bombing Japan. Okinawa was carnage on a grand scale, and there is no doubt that with mainland Japan being the next stop, and considering the level of resistance mounted by the Japanese, resistance which included forcing native civilians and children as young as 13 into the fight, and using suicide tactics, Japan's home island would have suffered huge losses before capitulating. Japanese Emperor Hirohito, Prime Minister Tojo, and their minions would have sacrificed every man, woman, and child in Japan in a fight they knew they could not win. To make that point, on Okinawa, 1,780 middle school boys were organized by the Japanese into frontline service, while girl students were organized into nursing units. These children the Japanese called volunteers. When the Allied invasion took place, all school students were forced into service. Between the 21 male and female schools that were pressed into fighting, 2,000 students would end up dying on the battlefield. Their only choice? Die fighting or be shot by Japanese officers. There has been an effort on behalf of some historians to remove blame from Hirohito, a blame he richly deserves, for Japanese war atrocities and the suicidal defense of their war effort. Those historians blaming Japan's crimes on the Prime Minister Tojo and the military elite. And many people do not know that Hirohito was never charged and remained as Japanese emperor until his death in 1989. He was even granted a friendly meeting with President Nixon. Much of the blame for Japan's actions, including the attack on mainland China and the subsequent rape of Nanking in 1937, the illegal fortification of mandated islands in the Pacific, the very likely arrest, incarceration, and murder of American pilots Fred Noonan and Amelia Earhart, which occurred within a week of Japan's attack on mainland China in July of 1937, and numerous war crimes which included crimes against their own citizens and civilian men, women, and children in Japanese-occupied territories. Those actions have been largely swept under the table. Only 25 Japanese military officers were declared guilty during the Tokyo war crime trials, which were initiated by the American CIA, which then went by the name Office of Strategic Services, or OSS. In the various tribunals set up outside this American-led trial, 5,000 Japanese were found guilty of war crimes and 900 of those were executed, mostly by hanging. America might have suffered a temporary blindness toward justice, as well as a short memory of how our service men and women were treated when in captivity. But other countries did not forget during those trials, in which China and other victims of Japanese aggression were able to air their grievances more fully. Japan's Emperor Hirohito was the man at the top, and he was responsible for the actions of his subordinates. He never paid the price and should have hung for his actions. Plain and simple, the U.S. needed a long-term ally in the South China Sea, 
and the fix was in. The atom bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki killed over 150,000 Japanese. An attack on the Japanese mainland would have killed over a million Japanese, it has been estimated, civilian and military, due in large part to Hirohito and Tojo's blindness to the suffering of their own people and their lust for power, and would have cost the U.S. military tens of thousands of lives. Critics talk about how the atom bombs killed innocents, but decline to understand how many innocents would have been forced to fight and die or choose suicide in the face of an invasion of their homeland. It should be noted that after Okinawa, the Japanese government enacted new laws in preparation for the decisive battle they expected on the main island. These laws made it possible for boys aged 15 or older and girls aged 17 years or older to be drafted into frontline service. Hitler and Hirohito had more in common than most people today know. The Japanese high command had been offered more than one chance to surrender, but had refused, and the order to all their fighting forces was to fight to the last man, that suicide was the only honorable outcome, and that the proud empire of Japan would never surrender. This was March of 1945. Three long years of fighting had passed since Japan had launched their surprise attack against the American Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor, hoping to cripple the U.S. so badly that they would have no heart left to fight a war with both Japan and its Axis allies, Germany and Italy. Germany having conquered a large swath of Europe in 1939. Japan had conquered and brutally occupied most of China beginning in July of 1937, followed by the Dutch East Indies, Formosa, the Philippines, and most of the Pacific Islands. And for three years, American forces on land and sea and in the skies had been fighting desperately to beat back the Japanese onslaught and avenge the attack on our Navy at Pearl Harbor. The United States Marines, with Army infantry support, were given the assignment to attack heavily fortified Japanese-held islands in the Pacific. Guadalcanal, Iwo Jima, Saipan, New Guinea, Guam, the Marshalls, Tarawa, New Britain, and elsewhere. Each island, from jungle to volcanic atoll, had its bloody cost in men and materials. This was some of the hardest, bloodiest, malaria-infested fighting known in modern history. On the oceans, it was just as terrible, as Japanese kamikaze planes and torpedoes could turn dozens of ships into blazing infernos in minutes, sending survivors of the initial carnage into the ocean where sharks and burning oil waited to finish them off. The Allies had decided not to take Formosa, which is present-day Taiwan. Okinawa offered a troop staging area for an attack on Japan, had large harbors and ideal landing strips, and most importantly, its capture would bring Japan within range of American medium bombers. This episode, titled Hacksaw Ridge and the Battle of Okinawa, is the story of the American invasion of Okinawa in March of 1945, the story of the incredible bravery and sacrifice of U.S. Marines, naval seamen, and Army infantry involved in the battle, including the Desmond Doss story that inspired the movie Hacksaw Ridge, it's a story of the ferocious kamikaze attacks on our U.S. carriers and fleets supporting the invasion, the sinking of the Japanese battleship Yamato, and much more. This is a story about the cost of freedom and a powerful reminder that peace on earth cannot be maintained with good wishes and detente as long as powerful dictators rule. Okinawa has been described accurately as a bloodbath, and it was. World War II in the Pacific was a fight that Japan had started, and a fight that America ended. The outcome of fighting a terrible war on two fronts across a world stage wasn't always clear. 
On the day that Iwo Jima fell, March 26, 1945, the 77th Infantry Division was put to shore on a cluster of small islands called the Kirama Reto, about 25 miles west of Okinawa. Only a thousand Japanese had been left to defend those islands by Japanese General Mitsuru Ushijima, who had taken the majority of his men and stationed them on Okinawa, along with somewhere between 20 and 40,000 Okinawan native men and boys who the Japanese had forced into service, setting up the bulk of his defenses along ridges that crossed east to west throughout the southern portion of the island. On Kirama, the 77th discovered 350 suicide boats, small wooden craft heavily loaded with explosives and designed for use against our invasion fleet. A pilot of each of these boats was destined for a suicide mission. This was the first ominous hint that the Japanese had decided on an all-out suicide plan as a means to wage war. On April 1st, the Allied fleet opened up on suspected Japanese positions on Okinawa, most of which were well dug in and protected against that Navy shelling. And a few days later, our 10th Army Infantry and Marines hit the beaches under the command of General Simon Buckner. Buckner's 10th Army consisted of four divisions, the 1st and the 6th Marines, and the 7th and 96th Infantry. The 77th, after mopping up Kurama Islands, prepared to take Ie Island, spelled I-E, pronounced Ia in Japanese, located off the northwest coast of Okinawa. As a note, war correspondent Ernie Pyle, whose stories we've occasionally included in our mix at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, was assigned to the 77th. A Japanese sniper with an automatic weapon had sneaked through the lines and dispatched Ernie with a single shot through the temple. Pyle was buried next to the men he wrote about and fought with. His stories named names and the towns his interviewees had come from and were listened to eagerly back home, being especially valuable as much information was censored due to the need for secrecy of troop movements and outcomes. After the beach landings, the first three days went well without meeting a lot of resistance, and two good airfields were captured, Yantone and Kadena. At that point, the two Marine divisions turned north, one straddling each coast, and worked and fought their way through hilly, heavily populated countryside. By April 13th, the Marines had reached Hedo Cape at Okinawa's northern tip. The situation in the southern half of Okinawa was very different, as it was on the south of the island that General Yushijima had placed most of his defenders. Somewhere between 110 and 140,000 Japanese regulars and Okinawan conscripts. It quickly became clear that suicide was the only ongoing strategy for the Japanese. And that became clear not only on the island of Okinawa, but out on the ocean as well, as Japanese kamikaze pilots started flying their bomb-laden planes directly into our ships. Five of our light carriers, the Franklin, the Hancock, the Intrepid, the Wasp, and the Enterprise, were all swarmed by kamikaze attacks. Japanese propaganda insisted that to escape was to be gunned down by your own pilots. At least one kamikaze pilot resisted, crashing his bomb-laden plane into his own hangar. He left a suicide note to tell the story. The kamikazes reflected the intensity of the Japanese brainwashing program, which devalued its fighting men and promised shame for generations of their family if they didn't die honorably. On April 7th, while our ground forces were deep in fighting on the island of Okinawa, 200 Japanese kamikaze planes attacked our transports off Hagushi in a strike that lasted for five straight hours. One kamikaze struck the picket destroyer Bush. The destroyer Calhoun 
hurrying to rescue crewmen from the bush, was hit by four kamikaze planes at once. Ninety-four Americans died in those attacks, and six of our ships were sunk, while another eighteen were damaged. Meanwhile, the Japanese high command ordered the Yamato, their largest battleship, on a suicide mission of its own. The Yamato had narrowly escaped being destroyed on the Gulf of Leyte by our 5th Fleet after the USS Johnston and other destroyers took the Yamato and her escorts on in a one-sided battle that may not have stopped the Yamato but prevented her from coming any closer to our landing forces as we recaptured the Philippines. The heroic fight of the USS Johnston is described in an episode in our archives called In Harm's Way. The Yamato steamed toward the American fleet supporting the Okinawa invasion, her mission now being to turn her massive guns on as many American ships as she could before she sank, while kamikaze planes attacked from overhead. This in many respects was similar to Hitler's last gasp as he sent his youth corps out to fight the approaching Russians, as well as the British and American forces approaching Berlin. Hitler, like the Japanese high command, had no respect for his fighting men or citizens. He was only worried about what would become of his remains after he committed suicide. Two American subs, the Hackleback and the Threadfin, spotted the Yamato off the Japanese coast and notified the 5th Fleet. Task Force 58 launched 358 planes. Their target? The Yamato. The first attempt hit the Yamato with two bombs and a torpedo, but the huge battleship didn't sink. The second strike hit the Yamato with three bombs and nine torpedoes. She turned over in the water and exploded. Still a full day's cruise from Okinawa. On Okinawa, the land battle, which began on April 1st, 1945, Easter Day then, would continue for 81 straight days without rest. Yushijima had convinced his soldiers that they must take 10 American lives or one American tank in return for their own. Their names and memory would be enshrined forever in the legend of the great empire of Japan. Of course, they were told that Japan was winning on all fronts thanks to efforts such as theirs, when in fact, the empire of Japan was fading fast, and their final demise was only months away. The southern end of Okinawa was a deadly anthill of tunnels which connected gun positions and held stores of ammunition. They had all the weapons they needed for hill and ravine fighting, mortars, machine guns, and light artillery, and they could use the hills to their advantage to make American advance costly. They were trying to cross a series of successive ridges, these positions made up the Japanese Shuri Line, which defended their underground headquarters beneath the grounds of the ancient Shuri Castle. Here was gathered the largest concentration of Japanese firepower, artillery, mortars, anti-tank guns, and mines ever found in one place during the Pacific War. The 96th Infantry reached the main Japanese defenses on April 7, 1945, and by April 9th and 10th, after three straight days and nights of fighting, the 96th was battling the Japanese for control of Kakazu and Kakazu West Ridges, with heavy losses on both sides. The fighting continued, with a new offensive being launched on April 19th, when the 96th, in heavy fighting on the Tombstone, Nishbaru, and Hacksaw Ridges, broke the northernmost Japanese line of defense. The 96th would lose 1,625 men killed in action during those few days, 7,500 were wounded, and 833 combat fatigue casualties resulted. 32 men were listed as missing in action. The 96th suffered the second highest number of casualties of the seven divisions involved. The 6th Marines suffered the most.
Many of the Japanese resistance flashpoints had to be eliminated individually, using dynamite, guns, or bare hands. All through that fighting, there were massive suicides happening among Japanese generals, civilians, and soldiers, as they believed it would be better to die than to surrender and be taken captive. As previously mentioned, the Japanese authorities also forced middle and high school children to volunteer as soldiers and medical workers, which resulted in one of the highest numbers of child deaths in the history of World War II. Suicide attacks were common. The local conscripts had been brainwashed by the Japanese to believe that American Marines would eat them alive, and it wasn't uncommon to see women armed only with spears joining in the attack on American servicemen. The fog of war there had lasted so long and the war was so brutal that the American servicemen didn't care who was coming at them. We'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsor. And now, back to our show. The fighting was brutal in the southern central portion of Okinawa. The 96th Infantry Division lost men killed in the battle for Cactus Ridge, about five miles northwest of Shuri, while the 7th Infantry Division faced tough opposition from Japanese embedded on a rocky pinnacle located about 1,000 yards southwest of Arakachi, later dubbed the Pinnacle. By the night of April 8, these two Japanese positions had been cleared, costing the U.S. another 1,500 casualties while killing or capturing 4,500 Japanese. And the real battle had not yet begun. By May 11th, the Americans had won critical battles for two important Japanese positions which flanked the Shiri Line, Conical Hill and Sugar Hill. By the end of May, monsoon rains had turned the area into a morass, impossible for tanks to navigate, and deadly for troops who needed medical evac. Unburied bodies became mired and sank in the muck, becoming a part of a noxious stew and maggot-infested mud. According to an account of the battle presented in the Marine Corps Gazette, more mental health issues arose from the Battle of Okinawa than any other battle in the Pacific during World War II. The constant bombardment from artillery and mortars, coupled with the high casualty rates, led to a great deal of personnel coming down with combat fatigue. Additionally, the rains caused mud that prevented tanks from moving and tracks from pulling out the dead, forcing Marines, who pride themselves on burying their dead in a proper and honorable manner, to leave their comrades where they lay. This, coupled with thousands of bodies, both friend and foe littering the entire island, created a scent you could nearly taste. Morale was dangerously low by the month of May, and the state of discipline on a moral basis had a new low barometer for acceptable behavior. The ruthless atrocities by the Japanese throughout the war had already brought on an altered behavior, deemed so by traditional standards by many Americans resulting in the desecration of Japanese remains. But the Japanese tactic of using the Okinawan people as human shields brought about a new aspect of terror and torment to the psychological capacity of the Americans. Said one Okinawa combat veteran named Bill Pierce, We went in with 3,500 men, he said, and after 82 days of combat, more than 2,800 of those were gone. We had casualties of more than 80%. On Sugarloaf Hill, he said, the 29th Marines lost 500 men killed in a week of bitter and bloody battle. No Marine regiment in the history of the Corps has ever suffered such high casualties in a single battle as the 29th Marines did on Okinawa. He also freely admitted that at that time he hated the Japanese with a vengeance. They were animals, 
They'd cut off guys' privates and stuff them in their mouths. They'd behead people, cut off arms, gouge eyes out. Put it this way, he said. We didn't take many prisoners. The invasion force had landed, he told one interviewer, roughly in the middle of the island on the west coast. From there, the army units had headed south, while the marines had been sent into the more mountainous north. They eventually ran into some Japanese dug in at the foot of steep, rocky, and wooded slopes of a series of hills known as Yaitaki on the Motobu Peninsula. But after taking some hits from sniper fire, the marines spread out across the valley beneath the hills, their 37mm guns spaced out in a line. In front, they also set up a number of trip flares. Sure enough, that night, the flares were triggered, hissing into the night and lighting up the valley with an eerie phosphorescence. We could see about a hundred people advancing, he recalled, so we asked what we should do. Mow them down, came the reply. So we let go with the canister, and in the morning there were eighty women and children lying there and just a few Japs. The Japanese had pushed the civilians out in front of them. They used them as human shields to try to get away. A day didn't pass, he said, when we didn't see a dead civilian. At least 150,000 Okinawans were killed during that battle, more than a third of the indigenous population. Okinawa had been a beautiful island, but in the south, especially, where most of the fighting took place, the landscape soon became more akin to the desolate and poisoned battlefields of the Western Front in the First World War. We could be sitting there eating a sea ration can or a Hershey bar, he said, and right there where Quincy's dying, there's a dead Jap with an arm sticking up or a mangled leg. It didn't mean a thing. We'd become completely immune to it. You just became hardened to it immediately. Operations in the north of the island had been wrapped up by the third week of April 1945, and the 6th Marine Division was left to carry out mop-up patrols and to pick up a few souvenirs of their 20-day battle. Silk kimonos being a favorite. But while operations had gone by the plan in the north, the same could not be said of the fighting in the south. The majority of the 100,000-plus strong Japanese 32nd Army were dug in along a series of defensive lines that crossed the south end of the island, and which were linked in typical Japanese fashion by 60 miles of tunnels and carefully hidden gun and mortar positions. There were also a large number of caves in the south, ancient tombs that made effective dugouts. Although U.S. Army units breached the outer Japanese lines of defense, they soon became bogged down in a highly costly battle of attrition, and so on May 4th, the 6th Marines were sent south, taking the place of the embattled and much depleted 27th Infantry Division along what had become known as the Shuri Line. The Marines were thrown against Sugarloaf Hill, the main western anchorage of the Shuri Line. It was a tiny, insignificant landmark, 300 yards long and no more than 60 feet high. You could run up at no time at all, if it wasn't all defended but it was of vital importance, and there was only one way of taking it, a yard at a time by the unfortunate men on the ground. With the enemy well dug in, whole companies of Marines were decimated as they repeatedly assaulted the feature. This was a fight with rifle, machine gun, and mortars. If a mortar shell landed beside you, the guy was blown to bits, and his body was nothing but a black hulk. You look at it, but you just keep going, he said. You don't stop because he's dead. Many soldiers, he said, in those conditions, went around the bend. Over 26,000 casualties were caused by battle fatigue, illness, and non-battlefield injuries. I've seen guys sitting there sobbing, Pierce said. Others refused to go up the line. 
He never suffered combat fatigue himself, but unknown levels of exhaustion which he likened to a hundred nights of no sleep. You're sleeping in a hole every night, and anything you do could get you killed, including absolutely nothing. That's what it felt like. Much of the destruction, mass weapons, and bloodshed of Okinawa were captured in the film Hacksaw Ridge. Directed by Mel Gibson, the film tells the true story of Army medic and conscientious objector Desmond Doss, who was played by Andrew Garfield, and who, during one of the bloodiest battles of the Second War, saved 75 men without firing a gun. There were 24 medals of honor awarded to American fighting men for their actions witnessed during the Battle for Okinawa. All the men who fought in that campaign were heroes, but it's doubtful that any of them who survived considered themselves heroes. They would tell you that they were just doing their job. In telling Doss's story here, we're not trying to single him out or portray him as the only hero of the Battle of Okinawa. He wouldn't have wanted that, say those who knew him well. Every American serviceman and woman has a story, and each makes sacrifices. Doss's story is one of faith, conviction, and self-sacrifice that provides inspiration for many, and in that light, we present it here. If hearing this story increases the public knowledge with regard to our sacrifices during World War II and the Battle of Okinawa, and opens the mind as to the causes and results of that battle with regard to its place in history and its importance to the cause of freedom, then it's worth the telling, and the sacrifices of PFC Doss and all the others will not have been in vain. The Maeda Escarpment is a ridge overlooking Urasso City and located on the middle south part of Okinawa Island on the west coast. Since World War II, it has carried the name Hacksaw Ridge. The American forces staged a huge troop landing on the west coast of Okinawa at a village named Chitan, and troops and tanks headed south from there, reaching Kakazu Escarpment first, a well-defended ridge on which the Japanese were dug in and fortified. After days and nights of brutal fighting at Kakazu Ridge, the Americans moved south to the next ridge, which is called the Maeda Escarpment, or Hacksaw Ridge. All of these ridges needed to be taken before the Allies could attack the Japanese headquarters at the Shuri Castle Ruins, headquarters which were built underground and connected miles of tunnels to various gun emplacements. On all the island area that the Japanese occupied, they used local civilians and captured enemy as slave labor to dig fortifications. When they died, they replaced them with more. It was during the fighting for these ridges that PFC Corpsman Desmond Doss was recognized for heroism above and beyond the call of duty. On Hacksaw Ridge, Doss saved between 50 and 100 lives of wounded infantrymen. Doss said around 50 when he was asked, but witnesses said nearer to 100. No one had the time to count with all the bullets and mortar rounds flying and bodies falling. They finally all agreed at 75 just to have a number. What made Desmond Doss very unusual was that he never carried a weapon as most medics did. He was a conscientious objector. He was born in Lynchburg, Virginia in 1919 during the First World War, growing up in a small home where his mother was deeply religious and his father was deeply into alcohol, despite prohibition. The movie Hacksaw Ridge portrayed his father as being physically abusive, which he was not but there was an incident during which his father got in an argument with an uncle and pulled a gun on him. Desmond's mother broke it up, taking the gun, handing it to Desmond, and asking him to hide it. That was the day he swore he would never pick up a gun or kill anyone, regardless of the circumstance. 
Doss dropped out of school after eighth grade to help his family with living expenses. It was the Depression, and the family was struggling. Both his brother Harold and sister Audrey noted in later years how Desmond was showing attributes of tolerance, forgiveness, compassion, and inner strength during those years. Once, hearing on the radio that there had been a bad auto accident nearby and that one of the victims needed blood, he walked three miles to a hospital and offered to give blood to help the victims. The movie shows him giving blood to get the attention of a nurse whom he later married, but that wasn't the case at all. Her name was Dorothy Shute. He actually met her at his Seventh-day Adventist church, and they married. She didn't earn her nursing degree until years later. On September 16, 1940, the United States issued the first peacetime draft the country had ever seen. Germany had invaded Poland and France, and had set their sights on destroying Great Britain and the U.S. leadership knew war was in the wind, despite the desire of most Americans not to get involved in what they considered to be Europe's problems. Dawes was marked as a conscientious objector, having told them he would not kill or carry a weapon. He received an IAO status, meaning he was available for non-combat military service, and he followed through with that, signing up at Newport News Naval Shipbuilding in Hampton Roads, Virginia. When Pearl Harbor was attacked on December 7, 1941, a flood of men of all ages rushed to join the service, and Doss was no exception. He joined the Army and was sent to Fort Jackson, Michigan, for training with the 77th Infantry Division. He became a medic. Boot camp went hard for Doss. He was devoted to regular prayer, and he refused to bear arms. He was soft-spoken and skinny. He just didn't fit the mold of a fighting man, and he went through hell in training, suffering the abuse of officers and fellow soldiers alike. He was branded as a slacker, the weak leak in the chain, and his CO tried to get him transferred out, saying he was bad for morale. The CO bullied Doss and stayed on his back all the time. At one point, Doss told him, Don't ever doubt my courage, because I will be right by your side saving lives while you're taking lives. His fellow soldiers heaped abuse upon him whenever they could, but as the weeks of training went by, Doss showed no intention to quit, and he worked doubly hard to fulfill his duty as a medic, caring for everything from blisters to heat stroke and any other ill that arose from intense training. When they shipped out, Doss was assigned to 2nd Platoon, B Company, 1st Battalion, 307th Regiment of the 77th Infantry. On July 23, 1944, Doss and the 77th set foot on Guam, a tiny Japanese-held island in the Pacific, and his unit was involved in the jungle fighting there for three solid weeks. With every cry of medic, he skirted enemy lines to treat and often retrieve the wounded, coming so close to the enemy at times that he could hear their whispers. His courage and devotion to duty was noted, and he received a bronze star for his actions there. After Guam, his unit was sent to Leyte, joining the fierce fighting to retake the Philippines from the Japanese, and his actions there earned him a second bronze star. The day before Hitler's suicide, on April 29, 1945, Doss's unit was deployed to Yurasso Mura on Okinawa, the last stepping stone before attacking the Japanese mainland. And you've already been brought up to date on our fighting there in the previous narrative. The 307th Regiment arrived at Hacksaw Ridge on the 29th of April, immediately taking over the battle at that rocky ridge after several other battalions had tried, suffering huge losses in the process. Doss's unit began the assault on the ridge, which required a climb almost straight up with heavy weapons firing straight down on them. V. L. Starling, in the 2004 documentary The Conscientious Objector, 
observed, Them boys fired them machine guns and things until the barrels was turning red. First battalion fell back, stunned, many falling, dead or wounded, while others fell back to safety. When first battalion reached the top of the ridge, the fighting was brutal. At one point they fell back, stunned, many falling, dead or wounded, while others fell back to safety. Das did not fall back. He remained directly in the path of enemy fire with the wounded, rushing to treat them and then carrying them back, one by one, back to the jagged cliff edge, and then lowering each man to safe hands on a rope-supported litter that Das himself had pieced and tied together while under fire, anchoring it to a tree stump. Stumps were all that remained on that ridge, for all the trees had been blown away by the heavy fire. B.J. Starling added that Das had said, Them boys that's wounded out there, I gotta go see about them. That's my job. The days of fighting rolled on, and Das continued to save fallen wounded. On May 4th, he treated four men whom Japanese forces had gunned down less than ten yards from an enemy cave that the American forces were trying to seize. He carefully dressed each man's wounds before evacuating them to safety. On May 5th, Das's Sabbath, he applied dressings and administered plasma to an artillery officer as mortars fell all around him, then moved him to a safer spot. Later that day, Das saved another severely wounded comrade who lay helpless 25 feet from an enemy machine gun nest. The Japanese were not known to spare medics in World War II. And this was desperate fighting on Okinawa. Some later said the Japanese guns must have frozen. Others said Das showed an impossible amount of luck. Day after day, for another 16 days, Das continued saving lives in heavy fighting. It was now May 21st, in the middle of a cold and wet night. In exposed position, while providing aid to injured soldiers, Das's luck ran out. A grenade fell, which he tried to kick away, but a burst of shrapnel from the grenade exploding pierced his leg and hip. He treated himself and remained on the battlefield for five hours until the litter-bearers found him. Later, doctors would remove 17 pieces of shrapnel from his leg. As the bearers carried him to safety in the midst of a tank attack, Das spotted another injured soldier and directed his rescuers to save the other man instead of him. Even as blood poured out of his leg wounds, Das crawled off his stretcher to ensure the safety of another. As he waited for the stretcher bearers to return, a Japanese sniper shattered his arm with a bullet. You won't see that in the movie, because director Mel Gibson felt that considering all that Das had gone through, the viewing public wouldn't believe that scene. They would think it was cinematic overkill. But it actually happened. The bullet entered Das's wrist, exited through his elbow, and re-entered his upper arm, lodging itself there. He responded by making a splint out of a rifle, the only time it should be noted that he used a rifle during his service. With the bones of his arm in pieces, he finally retired to safety, crawling across 300 yards of open battleground to cover with his one good arm and one good leg. On the hospital ship Mercy, when he came to, he realized that he'd lost his one constant companion, his Bible, back on the battlefield. His wife had given him that Bible on their wedding day. She had written these words inside. If we do not meet another time on this earth, we have the assurance of a happy meeting place in heaven. May God, in his mercy, grant us both a place there. As Das recovered in an infirmary, U.S. ground forces defeated the Japanese on Hacksaw Ridge and then finally claimed victory over the 120,000 remaining Japanese troops and their Okinawan conscripts. It's estimated that 110,000 Japanese soldiers and conscripts died in the battle for Okinawa. 
a total of 7,401 Japanese regulars and 3,400 Okinawan conscripts were captured during the battle. Additional Japanese and renegade conscripts were captured or surrendered during the next few months, bringing the total survivors on the Japanese side to 16,346 out of the original 140,000. This marked the first battle of the Pacific War in which thousands of Japanese soldiers were surrendered or captured. It was against the code of honor which had been drummed into them by Hirohito and his minions to surrender. Surrender made shame to their country and their families. Death in battle or by suicide was considered the only honorable way. With regard to civilian casualties, outside of conscripts, tens of thousands of Okinawans were driven to mass suicide by the Japanese. In March of 2008, the Osaka Prefecture Court ruled in favor of Nobel Prize-winning author Kenzaburo Oe's research that a mass suicide order was given by the Japanese military during the battle for Okinawa. A 2012 documentary titled Only One is Alive, which collected survivors' accounts for the purpose of showing the truth which had been hidden from history books, alleged that there were two types of orders given for honorable death to the civilians, one for the residents to kill each other, and the other for the military to kill all the residents. It would take many years for the Ryukyu Islands to see any healing and finally realize the truth of the extent of Japanese atrocities committed during the Japanese occupation and the Battle of Okinawa, all of which had been denied and covered up for over 50 years by the Japanese. The Americans lost nearly 20,000 killed and 55,000 wounded, with 221 tanks destroyed, 12 destroyers sunk by kamikaze planes, 15 amphibious ships sunk, 9 other ships lost, and 386 ships damaged. 763 American aircraft were lost during the battle, a huge loss that's barely mentioned when the Battle of Okinawa is discussed. U.S. aircraft losses over the three-month period included those planes bombing the Kyushu airfields from which Japanese kamikaze planes were being launched. 458 planes were shot down in combat, and 310 American planes were lost in operational incidents. After the island was secured, Doss's regiment returned to Hacksaw Ridge to search for Doss's Bible, figuring he had earned it. The ridge was a stinking morass of mud, blood, and body parts, but they found the Bible and mailed it to Doss's home in Lynchburg, where it waited with his wife for his return. Japan continued to refuse to surrender, preparing the entire nation for mass suicides if the Allies attacked, but they were spared losing millions of their citizens when the U.S. dropped two atomic bombs, the first detonating on the city of Hiroshima in early August, prompting the response from Hirohito that there would be no surrender, and the second being dropped on Nagasaki on August 9, 1945, making it obvious that the U.S. had more than one bomb in its arsenal. Japan then signed a formal surrender agreement on September 2nd on the U.S. battleship Missouri, officially ending World War II. Japan was given a merciful agreement by the U.S. that allowed them to rebuild their country and their economy. I can't think of another country which, having suffered as much loss of men and materials, has treated a surrendered aggressor with so much charity, helping that country to become one of the world's most powerful economies within a span of just two decades. What most people don't know is that Hirohito, the man primarily responsible for all of Japan's sins, was allowed to remain in his position as emperor until his death in 1989. He was never summoned to the war crimes trials, which, by the way, 
are the topic of next week's episode at 1001 Heroes as we interview author Michel Parody about his new book, Last Mission to Tokyo. The almost unheard of story of the war crimes trial that involved a handful of surviving Doolittle Raiders as they sought justice against the Japanese prison guards who had tortured and held them captive for over three years. That's Last Mission to Tokyo next week. In addition to the two bronze stars that Das earned in Guam and in the Philippines, he received three Purple Hearts for combat injuries and the presidential unit citation given to his battalion for the men's efforts on Hacksaw Ridge that led to the eventual securing of the Maeda Escarpment, along with other units. He was also awarded the Medal of Honor during a ceremony on the White House lawn by President Truman on October 12, 1945, with a citation that read in part, Through his outstanding bravery and unflinching determination in the face of desperately dangerous conditions, PFC Doss saved the lives of many soldiers. His name became a symbol throughout the 77th Infantry for outstanding gallantry far above and beyond the call of duty. Said Truman, I'm proud of you, and I consider this a greater honor than being president. Doss would go on to spend the next six years of his life in hospitals, receiving treatment for his battle wounds. He had his left lung and five ribs removed due to tuberculosis, which no doubt came from his time spent in foxholes in the Pacific Islands. And because that ailment was contagious, it was kept from his son, Desmond Doss Jr., for nearly six years. The injuries and operations left him 90% disabled. Later, he would go blind. After his release from hospitals, he spent much of his time practicing and preaching his faith and mentoring children, including speaking to youth groups about developing their spiritual character. In following years, his wife Dorothy developed breast cancer, and tragically, she was killed in a car accident while he was driving on the way to the hospital for one of her treatments. She's the most underrated person in the whole story, said her son, in the book Faith of Das. So much of what happened to my dad would not have happened if not for her. Desmond Das passed away on March 23, 2006, at his home in Piedmont, Alabama, at the age of 87, and he's buried in the National Cemetery in Chattanooga, Tennessee. After Das's death, in an interview with the Chinook Observer, Das's son described him as an ordinary man that often performed in ways that were incredibly uncommon, that he operated from a set of consistent principles, and his story was one of love for his brothers, even when they did not like him. The power of that is incredible, said Desmond Das Jr. It's the power that distinguishes the great teachers, the ability not to waver from love, compassion, acceptance, and forgiveness. We hope you enjoyed this story at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Please take a moment to send us a review if you enjoyed this episode and others in our archives. And please do share our show with friends. We appreciate that very much. Until next Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, everyone, please stay safe. And we'll be back soon.